0: Have you hiked the Camino Trail in Spain? I'm sure many of you regularly roll out the yoga mat. Some of you may even tinker a bit with some zen home decor. Are these acts of curiosity or taste, or is it appropriation? You see, we hear a lot about appropriation these days, especially artistic and cultural appropriation. Is it homage or insensitivity to wear clothing or cook cuisine or or even play music from a culture that isn't your own? Writers from Anglo and European backgrounds have found themselves in deep controversy after writing in the character of people from different heritage. The author Lionel Shriver, you might recall, kicked up a storm when she tried to tackle the issue. Even actors now ask themselves, are there certain characters they can't or or shouldn't play? Liz Bukar is a professor of religion at Northeastern University and she's heard all of these arguments and because she's curious and doesn't mind a good argument herself, she decided to ask the same question about religion. The result is a book called Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation. Here's Liz Bucar.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Now, I want to start in a place that many listeners will know about. Quite a few may have even visited there. This is the Camino de Santiago de Compostelo. That is the St. James Way in Spain. What is this famous walking route?
1: Yeah, so the Way, or the Camino as it's often referred to, is a pilgrimage route that starts in sort of southern France, and it the French Way, which is the most famous and the most popular one, snakes its way through northern Spain, and it ends in Santiago. And the idea is that when the bones of the Apostle St. James were, by legend, discovered in about 813 in northern Spain, they're entombed there now in the cathedral in Santiago. And so there's this walking pilgrimage through some major cities, but also small hamlets marked by yellow arrows. That's extremely popular today, about a quarter of a million people were walking it before COVID, and I bet they'll have a record year again the next summer.
0: And you take a lot of your university students on this pilgrimage, but of course they wouldn't all be Catholics, so why do they go?
1: Frankly, my students are usually not religious studies majors. I maybe have had one. They go because of the adventure of a pilgrimage. They go because they think, well, I don't know, pilgrimage seems like a pretty meaningful, life-transforming experience. Oh, I'm gonna get course credit to go do it. Sounds great. You know, um, I take honors students It's part of our honors program when I've taught in the past. So these are like really high achieving students who do well and, and actually have done well almost everything they've ever tried. And the Camino is an interesting challenge because they're not sure what it's going to be like to walk 13 18 miles every day over and over again in rain sometimes in snow in mud but they're also just looking to get the thing out of the camino whatever the spiritual payoff is for Christians or Catholics who walk it, they think that maybe if I just walk it, I'll get that payoff too without having to be Christian or Catholic.
0: Yeah. Well, as you say, many of them are high achieving students. They do get a little credential. The Catholic church gives you a little certificate if you complete the Camino. Do some of them sort of add it to their academic resume?
1: That little certificate at the end is super important to them. And that was – interesting to me, I guess not surprising to me, right? They collect awards and certificates of achievement. That's what they've been taught to do by their education. But what's interesting about the certificate, particularly the first year I went, the Catholic Church at that point was only giving the certificate out to people who declared at the end that they had walked the Camino for religious or spiritual reasons. Usually my students start the Camino not doing this for religious or spiritual reasons. I'm doing it for course credit or for an adventure or for cultural reasons. But they're so committed to the idea of getting that certificate that they really grapple with that throughout the trip and the journey. I mean, you have to actually walk a certain amount of it, the, cert- the last 100 kilometers to get that certificate. And I had a student who had to take a taxi and she was worried she wouldn't get the certificate then. And I was but you're not Catholic. Why do you care about the Catholic Church authorizing your pilgrimage as legitimate and authentic? But for them, that accreditation that piece of paper is really important as a sign that they've somehow done it right. We think that there's an authentic way, like a right way to do a pilgrimage. And really, I think what the students learn, what I learn is that idea of authenticity is really wrapped up in power. The Catholic Church has a stake at it tell you that you're doing it right. Local tourist economy has a a stake at deciding what an authentic pilgrim is and how much they should walk. And I have a stake in it too, right? I've developed a program Mm. which has them do certain things and tasks as if that's authenticity, instead of just questioning the idea of authenticity itself and realizing that power is wrapped up in that idea. Uh,
0: Well, you see, you're not offended that non-Catholics do it, but is it an example of appropriating someone's religion? You uh, sometimes take evangelical protestant students along are they appropriating a uniquely catholic cultural experience there
1: i think a lot of that depends on context i draw the distinction in my book between religious borrowing something that you borrow as an outsider and sometimes that can be morally neutral not harmful sometimes it can even be good And then appropriation is sort of the category, the word I use to describe things that do cause some sort of harm and offense. And a lot of that depends on context and the way you're approaching it. In the book, I tell a story about an evangelical group I took one year who was very outspoken, the entire Camino, very negative about the Catholic Church. And they really tried to own Christianity the whole trip, and that approach to the Camino was what made it appropriative. Not necessarily that they were evangelicals engaging the practice, because the Catholic Church itself is okay with you know non-Catholics walking it. You know, it's part of their <laughs> promotion is to try to get more people on the Camino. But there's a way in which that group, for example, the group that called itself God Squad, was really um, trying to like make the Camino more Protestant. Mm. And that was where the appropriation, the harm kind of came, particularly to the Catholic students I happened to have on that trip, to which that was really uncomfortable and felt disrespectful to me. Uh,
0: Liz, you liken it to the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, which is made by faithful Muslims. But, of course, only Muslims can actually make the Hajj. Should the same principle apply to people walking the Camino, that you need to demonstrate, if not some piety, then uh, some purity of purpose?
1: The Hajj is very different. It is only for faithful Muslims. And I tell the story of, you know, Sir Francis Burton, who went undercover as a Muslim. He even got circumcised so he could travel by caravan and people would think he was Muslim. He learned Arabic and he went in undercover. That seems to me a case of appropriation, which is profoundly offensive because Muslims themselves would be very offended to know that a non-Muslim was doing that not only the, doing that travel and that journey, but then the rituals in Mecca. The Camino is very different. It's particularly in modern times been something that's welcomed pilgrims for many different reasons. And yet I still think that it's important to realize that some people do walk this route still out of devotion and out of piety. Some people walk it to deal with a recent loss, like of a child or a parent. And so if you're treating it as a party or you're treating it as a moment to sort of push your own sort of religious agenda, you might be impinging on someone else's ability to have the community that they, they want and they deserve. So a lot of it has to do with the way you approach the pilgrimage and also how willing you are to learn from and learn about and from the history of the Camino There's a little bit of a dark history there, and I think it's important for understanding why the Camino is so important to the Catholic Church and why it's so important to Spain. And it's a little bit of an uncomfortable history because it's about religious violence, but I think it's also important to learn about that later.
0: Yeah, well, the Camino, as you point out in the book, has uh, a history that's connected with uh, clashes with the Moors from Morocco and um, the Counter-Reformation. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. I'm speaking this week with Liz Bukar about Liz's new book, Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation. Liz and we're going to broaden the discussion now, couldn't a lot of what you argue is religious appropriation or religious borrowing simply be an example of homage. If I go back sort of 35 years to the 1980s, the Vatican got very upset with Madonna because she used, I think, a rosary and a crucifix when she made her music video of Like a Prayer. But only three or four years ago wasn't the Vatican lending official Catholic vestments to an event at the New York Met which involved people dressing up like popes and prelates.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting case study. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City has a big event every year tied to its costume gallery and they have a theme. In one year it was a theme about Catholic aesthetics called Heavenly Bodies and so the red carpet was all celebrities showing up some cool mashup of Catholic aesthetics and fashion. So people came dressed as Jesus and Mary. Some people came with nativity scenes on their head, Rihanna came as the Pope. And that did cause some uncomfortableness within some parts of the Catholic community. But what was interesting is because the Vatican had kind of authorized that event, they had given some articles of clothing to the exhibit, they had a cardinal there on the red carpet, that people who are usually very sensitive to forms of cultural appropriation were like, no, 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 you can't, it's not appropriation because the Vatican approved it. No, 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 you can't appropriate the Catholic Church because it's, it's powerful. And I think that misses a little bit about how complicated the power dynamics there are. Even if the Vatican authorizes an event, and there are political reasons why it did. It was going through a pretty big PR um,
0: nightmare. Very
1: bad. (laughs) Yeah, nightmare. I was looking for the nice word. Don't mince
0: words, yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Vatican was looking kind of for anything to draw attention elsewhere. So I'm not surprised that they were supporting it. I'm also not surprised that some lay Catholics didn't agree with the Vatican and that some lay Catholics thought that some celebrities took it too far with the way that they used religious imagery and kind of camped it up and that they found it a little offensive. And particularly in the U.S. where we're so sensitive to not dressing up in native costumes, for example, or costumes linked to different ethnic and racial communities, the fact that religious costumes seemed to get a pass didn't feel right for a lot of people. And so I think that it's really complicated about a a form of religious appropriation is just because one person says it's okay doesn't mean it's not going to be offensive to someone else.
0: Mm. But I suppose going back to this notion that it could be a form of homage, for something to be appropriated, it does have to have an aesthetic. It does have to have a culture. We're not just talking here about a belief system. And of course, you don't see too many people these days seeming to appropriate modern forms of Protestantism, like Pentecostalism or or evangelical Christianity, because they in themselves have appropriated arguably the worst of modern pop culture.
1: Yeah, so I think that part of your question is about where it's aligned between appreciation and appropriation. In some ways, that's a little bit the wrong question, because intention doesn't necessarily tell us what the result is going to be, right? The example of um, Solidarity Hijab uh, tended to combat gender Islamophobia, but actually experienced as a form of gender Islamophobia by some Muslim women. So the intent doesn't necessarily tell you the impact, but I think also... What you're sort of pointing to, particularly around the issues of clothing, it's an ethical gray area. It's not black and white. The rosary that you brought up is a good example. Rosaries are extremely popular right now as a fashion accessory. And for some people, I think that is a sort of serious engagement, maybe with their latent connection to Catholicism. I'm thinking of someone like Courtney Kardashian, who is one of our celebrities in the U.S. who just had this big wedding, very full of like Catholic aesthetics, and she wears rosaries all the time. But then sometimes it's also more like a Madonna where it's meant to be blasphemous and it's meant to be provocative. Mm. Rosaries are also used by, weaponized by the alt-right in the U.S. Guns and rosaries as a way to like militarize this aesthetic for a political campaign. Again, context really matters. And I actually like that it's an ethical gray area because because I teach religious ethics, I want people to sit in that discomfort and not look for easy answers and really take a look at like, okay, how is this interacting in the actual world? Is it reinforcing white supremacy? Is it reinforcing Orientalism? How is it interacting with capitalism? Who's being financially exploited? Who's saying I feel harmed and offended? And are those players that we want to listen to and take seriously? Are they sometimes people who are erased or silenced? Mm. It's a big conversation to have about each of these cases.
0: Yeah, well, a big conversation. And I want to reserve a part of it. You made a reference to the alt-right. I'm going to come back to that in an unexpected way in a moment. Where does this rather fashionable and, frankly, rather fuzzy phrase, spiritual but not religious, fit in with the idea of religious appropriation?
1: I teach at a secular university um, in Boston. Most of my students come to northeastern there when they arrive and when they leave they identify as spiritual but not religious. And you know we say at least in the US the largest religious affiliation is going to be this spiritual but not religious or non-religious affiliated group. It's a growing group. Spiritual but not religious as an identity is also an identity that is fraught for religious appropriation because by definition it's someone who says no no religion is not for me. I don't like religion. I don't like The rules, the institutions. I'm not part of the community. I don't like the doctrines. I don't want to associate myself with religious histories that are, of course, problematic because everything is problematic in that way. But I want to experience spirituality. And so I'm going to curate for myself some sort of spiritual practice. And I maybe, you know, maybe religions are a salad bar and I'm going to walk down that salad bar and pick and choose the things that I like to put on my Mm. plate. And I think that I have a right to do that and to curate my own sort of experience for self-transformation or enlightenment or happiness or well-being, that can be problematic if the religious communities that are being borrowed from are not being, well, not being respected, right? And then also sometimes you take a practice out of a community without understanding its metaphysical or cosmological or, or value systems you might be doing something that's more powerful than you think it is.
0: Liz, in a time, though, of galloping secularism in the Western world, yeah. in, the, in the global North, can any religion afford, though, to kind of spurn the people who are spiritual but not religious? Many of them might, in fact, see these, uh, these as um, nascent believers.
1: Yeah, so I think that's exactly what you see sort of with the Camino and the promotion of the Camino by the Catholic Church to sort of anyone who wants to do it now for religious, spiritual, even cultural reasons, that it's part of the sort of outreach and education of the Catholic Church to the world. I'm less interested in telling religions what to do, and I'm more interested in the conversation with the spiritual but not religious folks. And I think I'm probably in that category. Although I'm baptized Catholic, I myself am not don't religiously affiliate now, but I also engage in some of these spiritual practices. I want that group, the group I think I'm part of, to think about the consequences of our spiritual work that we do. Because I think that we think it's neutral and we forget that there's impact. Just because we do it for ourselves and it's individual, doesn't mean it may be not interacting again with structures of power that and structures of oppression that we don't want to reinforce and we don't want to be part of and just to realize that it's not necessarily a neutral thing.
0: On the Religion and Ethics Report, Andrew West with you, and we're speaking with Liz Bukar about Liz's intriguing new book, Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation. Liz, you mentioned there that you were baptized as a Catholic, but you no Mm -hmm. longer practice as a Catholic, but you are a trained yoga teacher. Now, this is where it gets very interesting, because um, I thought yoga these days was just about stretching and breathing exercises. Am I missing something?
1: You're right in that the most popular forms, the most mainstream forms of yoga, the most, the yoga you're going to find in most spaces, whether schools or corporations or yoga studios, is a form of wellness yoga. It's yoga to feel good, it's Pilates stretches, but it's not just Pilates and stretches. It's got a little spirituality sprinkled into it. And that's part of what the allure is. But yoga itself, is a larger category of practices and beliefs. And I think what's interesting about the yoga case is appropriation isn't just a case of what we borrow from communities, but also sometimes the harm can be in what we redact out and what we leave behind. Yeah. What's
0: the monster, and these are your words, the monster under the (laughs) yoga mat?
1: Yeah, so the monster for me under the yoga mat is that when yoga first came to my country, it was seen as too Eastern, too foreign, too countercultural, too much what people in like the East did. And it was associated with new religious movements that particularly Protestant parents thought were dangerous to their children. And it didn't go mainstream. It had, you know, there was neck up yoga that involved all these ideas and beliefs. And so the neck down yoga, the postures didn't take off. It wasn't really until yoga was reinvented Invented and that the stuff that was seen as Eastern and dangerous and foreign. It's only when that stuff could be like redacted away that yoga could be packaged as something that my mom in the 70s would learn from a nice white lady on public television in a leotard with an alms symbol on her leotard, taught my mom how to do yoga that my mom. Taught yoga in her, I don't know, Lutheran church, in community centers, and that's how I really came to yoga. This whitewashed, sanitized version of yoga, and I so I think that that is important for me to acknowledge and realize that what makes me comfortable with yoga and the way it's practiced in the U.S. is also what makes some um, South Asians in my country uncomfortable the way that's packaged. Right? Yeah.
0: Well, how has it been appropriated, especially during the pandemic, by the alt right?
1: Oh, yeah. So that I think that's very surprising to a lot of my yogi friends who see yoga as peace, love, bliss, good vibes only, because there's a real overlap between the alt-right and the wellness community in the US. We saw with the Capital Six insurgency that there are a lot of people who are wellness influencers, yoga influencers who were part of that. In that same community, like social media, you'll see a lot of overlap between the wellness and yoga community and QAnon conspiracies. And I see this a little bit with my own mother, actually. The way in which yoga is packaged and taught is that you are more of an expert in your body and your health, say, than like the medical profession is. It's kind of like do your own research. It's the same thing in the yoga industry as well. My mom sort of came to trust herbal medicine, yoga, things like that, to heal herself or to keep herself healthy. That means when something like COVID comes up, she's predisposed to not trust local and national you know medical mm-hmm. professions and she doesn't want to get vaccinated or she thinks it's a conspiracy and so there's this you know distrust of authority this distrust of government this overconfidence in yourself and what you think must be true, given what your inner voice is saying, that primes people for some of the ideas in the alt-right.
0: Yeah, sometimes yoga is coupled with authority because hasn't it become an extension of a political ideology in India itself?
1: So the Hindu rite and yoga. Yoga is being claimed, particularly by um, Prime Minister Modi, as sort of an Indian artifact, Indian practice, something that you know India has given to the world. And he's really leaned into yoga. He himself practices publicly. He got the UN to establish international yoga day. And that all seems, doesn't seem particularly problematic until you realize that yoga for him is tied primarily to Hinduism, even though it's predates all these religious traditions the way that we know them now, but he sees it as a Hindu practice. So if he can market India as the yoga capital of the world, he's also marketing India and marking it as Hindu. And that excludes, it's a part of the way of excluding say Muslims from the national narrative. And so it's a way to sort of shore up this idea that India is primarily for Hindus and that it should be governed by Hindus and that it you know, should center Hinduism. Yoga isn't just an Indian thing or just a Western thing. What we have today, this postural yoga, is because of the interaction of East and West, whether it's colonialism or the way it's marketed and packaged in the West and then re-imported back into India in that form. That whole global dynamic is really makes Modi's engagement, political engagement with yoga possible.
0: Yeah, and if you go to uh, the Taj Mahal, which we should remind people is an Islamic mausoleum, one of the great Mm -hmm. Islamic buildings of the world, although this isn't recent because I saw this almost 20 years ago when I visited India back in 2002, but outside this Islamic mausoleum, you see People practicing yoga and, and Hare Krishna activity.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The Taj Mahal is this great symbol of Indian you know, architecture, one of the wonders of the world. And if you can put a yoga pose in front of it and you have a prime minister saying that yoga is Hindu, now you're marking the space as Hindu and Indian and sort of erasing again what's erased there is the Muslim heritage and the Muslim history in India itself. Part of appropriation, again, is what is erased, what is decentered, what is hidden from view, um, not only what is promoted and borrowed.
0: Look, just as we wind up, Liz, you don't mention either of these two people in your book, but I am sitting here looking at a photograph of the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. He infamously went over the top on a visit to India. He dressed up like a Hindu bridegroom. And then I look back and remember, I think it was the last ever episode of that brilliant TV series, Mad Men, (laughs) where Don Draper, the Advertising executive sits on a cliff somewhere in California, maybe it's Berkeley, in a kind of yoga pose. They're popularizing something. Are they necessarily being offensive?
1: Those are two very different kind of case studies we'd have to sort of think about and dive into. If we want to think about Trudeau dressing up in sort of native garb to go to India. Partly that has to do with what's the context of the invitation. Is he trying to do that out of respect? Did he do it in consultation with his hosts? Or did he do it to like virtue signal or to perform something or to get a photo op to circulate? What was the sort of backstory to that? Both those images that you sort of mentioned, the Don from and the Trudeau, are really examples of orientalism but a romantic form of orientalism where like it's not like the orient is seen as bad but it's overly romanticized and that still is orientalism though right so this idea that the east has some special access to wisdom The underbelly of that is that because they are, you know, implied is because they are less modernized, less secular, less developed, less rational. And so I think we need to always be careful of when we are, we, if we're talking about Western individuals, Western nations, Western communities, repurposing those sort of Oriental Asian aesthetics for economic game, political game, or even just in ways that reinforce this us versus them hierarchy. In some ways, the two examples that you raise, although they may not be profoundly offensive, maybe are playing into Orientalism in a way that reinforces that stereotype.
0: So if over the Christmas holidays, you're going to redecorate your house and you're not a Buddhist, avoid Zen decor. (laughs) Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Bill, I mean, what is Zen decor, by the way, just before we go? Because um, you're not so keen on people who aren't Buddhists actually practicing it.
1: I mean, decor was not, didn't end up being a a keystay in the book, but I thought about it for a while. I mean, all the keystays in the books are things that I have a personal relationship to, things I have personally done. And, you know, I don't have a lot of Zen decor in my garden or in my house. But again, I think it's it's very similar to sort of yoga, where it's this idea that yoga is sort of has this pseudo liturgy with some of the Sanskrit and some of the chanting. Zen decoration can... Add a little bit of like spiritualness to your space, but often without engagement of what does this statue actually mean is a statue that shouldn't even be on the ground is a statue that shouldn't it's not appropriate for this image to be displayed in this way if you think about it in terms of the community it came from. So Zen decor would just be any sort of variety of aesthetics, statues or symbols placed around the house to sort of make your house seem cosmopolitan or worldly, but yet actually the ways in which those items are displayed out of context can show that you are not worldly because you don't understand the meaning of those objects.
0: Professor Liz Bukar. She's the Associate Director of the Religion and Ethics Initiative at the Ethics Institute at Northeastern University in Boston. And Liz's new book, which we've been discussing, is Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation. There's a lot more in the book that we haven't been able to discuss. But Liz, thank you for being with us on the Religion and Ethics Report.
1: Thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk.